Hello, everybody. <laughs> Isn't this nice, huh? To come to my home state and with ordinary people and good people. And I presume this is an ecumenical group uh, from many denominations, which is the real church, you know. There's people in every group who get it, and there's people in every group who oppose it. Uh, St. Augustine said that already in the 4th century. He says, God has many the church does not have, and the church has many that God does not have. Hmm? So, <laughs> so we've always got to look at the broader picture of where is life really flowing. And I use that as an introduction to, uh, I mean, I, I am very impressed that you'd come to listen to someone talk about a subject that most people think is entirely irrelevant, abstruse, conceptual, abstract, and distant, and meaningless even. I hate to say it, but Karl Rahner, the German Jesuit, he said, we could drop the doctrine of the Trinity tomorrow, and 98% of Christian practice and prayer would remain untouched and unchanged. Now, just saying that tells you, my God, does that, for me, it explains why Christianity is having so many problems worldwide and so many people are leaving because the basis uh, was not made clear. And by the basis, I mean, what is the shape of God? I just told them, what is the shape of God? Well, let's be honest and admit, we hear it on TV all the time, they even refer to God as the man upstairs. How often haven't you heard that? Right? The man up... What does that mean? <laughs> it means almost nothing that is meaningful or helpful or real or true. Uh, it's, in fact, heresy. Uh, but we tend to think of God as a being that we can relate to like any other being, which means, therefore, we relate to God as an object, uh, that we either like or dislike or agree with or don't agree with or believe in or don't believe in, uh, which just gets you off to a terrible start. Because God cannot, as St. John of the Cross and so many of our mystics said, God cannot be related to like any other anything. Because <laughs> God is not a being, God is being itself. Now, if you think I'm a heretic, go to Acts 17, God is the one in whom we live and move and have our very being. Now, what I'm going to do, and I hesitate to do this, the book uh, called The Divine Dance will not come out till October, but that's why I suggested this as a title because I've been writing this off and on for the last year, and so I'm sort of filled with it. I hope I can not run all over the place. But I'm going to read to you, at least in part, from my preface to the book, so we can just dive right into the subject. Because if you get this, I don't know that I got it yet. You never get it. It's just layer upon layer upon layer of realization. Uh, your Christian life, well, your life can never be the same again. And if you're not prepared for that kind of conversion, change, if you want to walk out that door in an hour thinking just like you think now, then don't stay, because I'm wasting my time, and you're wasting yours, and I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. So, 
In his book, uh, if you're a scientist, you might have read this book. It's a sort of classic in the world of the philosophy of science. Thomas Kuhn. He wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And he said the, he's the one who coined the term paradigm shift. You might be familiar with that. You know. He made clear that even in the scientific world, a paradigm shift is tantamount to what religion calls major conversion. And it is equally rare in both camps both science and religion. He says, any genuine transformation of worldview, that I looked at life this way, and now it's like my head was turned around and I look at life in a completely different way. It demands such a major switch from the track that we're on, unfamiliar with, that often those who hold the old paradigm, and he's talking about this as a scientist, they actually have to die <laughs> before the new generation because most people will not let go of their way of thinking. That's the universal addiction, which I talk about in the book Breathing Underwater. The universal addiction, true of me and every one of us in this room, is we like to think the way we like to think. <laughs> and, and to actually have that changed is called conversion or in science a paradigm shift. But we don't want you all to have to die before we can believe the Trinity, because that's what I'm talking about. The Trinity is such a momentous shift in the nature and the shape of God that after 2,000 years we haven't begun, really. I think we will still be called early Christianity. I believe that. The first 2,000 years are still early Christianity because the implications of the Incarnation and the Trinitarian shape of God have not begun to dawn on most Christian people. They still think of God as a being instead of being itself. Huh? And relate to God as, well, let's make it even worse, but more truthful, an old man with a white beard, usually white skin, unfortunately, who's, who's sitting on a white throne, I suppose. You know, it's all white. Uh, which should reveal a little bias at work already. But uh, do you even, I'm running away from my text already. But <laughs> <laughs> do you know the Latin, I had six years of Latin forced on me. Um, the Latin word for God is Deus, D-E-U-S. Does that sound anything like Zeus, Z-E-U-S, you got it. <laughs> Basically, most Christians still operate, I'm going to use the word, not that pagans are bad people, but it's a pagan notion of God. We didn't get the paradigm shift that the Christianity was supposed to offer the world. It was just too much. And so an old white man with a white beard sitting on a throne, throwing down thunderbolts like Zeus, uh, basically in the Western world, a... Uh, a glorified Santa Claus. And that is no exaggeration. Making a list, checking it twice, going to find out who's naughty or nice. If I were your spiritual director, I would be able to figure out, usually in the first half hour, that's still the God image this person operates with. You know, Glorified Santa Claus who gives coal to bad boys and gives 
little gifts to good boys. It sort of works if you're a kid. But once you start praying, and that's what this is all dependent on, without an inner life, which we would call a prayer life, you don't easily move away from the old white man sitting on a a throne. So, even more shocking is Kuhn's conclusion that a paradigm shift has little to do with logic or evidence and everything to do with a cataclysmic insight, a cataclysmic breakthrough, what Meister Eckhart, the German mystic, called boiling. You have to go through a boiling experience where the old doesn't work anymore. It doesn't make sense. In fact, I'm going to make a statement that I make, I think, more strongly in the book. I think the reason Western Christianity has produced so many atheists and so many agnostics is because the image of God we handed them was literally unbelievable <laughs> once you got educated. And, and it just didn't work. They weren't, I bet you all know some really nice atheists, don't you? Uh-huh. And sometimes they're much nicer than we are, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> sometimes much more loving than people who go to church every Sunday. And we'll see why that sometimes is true. So history has so long operated with a static, static and imperial notion of God, basically as a supreme monarch. Now, since Pastor Jeff was kind enough to put the Rublev icon in three places, it's in the back too, let me dive right into that. For many of us, this is, it's certainly my favorite icon. I have it hanging in my office and in my little hermitage, uh, was painted in the 14th century by a Russian mystic, Andrei Rublev, and uh, you know, that doesn't show the correct color on the, well it shows a little bit. The father is the one there on the left, he's usually pictured pretty golden, his hands are joined to symbolize this completeness. The son who is the color of the sea and the sky, blue and yet red, symbolizing his willingness to suffer for it, the blood color, is looking and gazing lovingly at the Father. They're all three eating from the same communion bowl, if you will, or bowl of communion. The Son is holding his two fingers to say, I'm two. You know, now I'm going to shock some of you, but I can promise you this is not heresy, what I'm about to say. And I know most of us Christians say it. You probably say it glibly off your tongue. Jesus is God. That's actually not good theology. (laughs) That's what happens when you pull Jesus out of the Trinity and try to make Jesus God apart from what's happening between the Father and the Holy Spirit. Almost all of us have done that doesn't matter what denomination you are. The Orthodox are a little better than the rest of us, but uh, most of them would probably easily say Jesus is God. No, this is God, right? (laughs) And when you take one-third of God out and push Jesus back up on the throne, as you see in much art in East and West, Jesus is now sitting on the throne. We didn't like the Father that much because we didn't know him and he seemed to demand blood of Jesus. And if you had a bad father, you were just programmed not to like the father. 
And, of course, we called him Father, which made us think he was masculine. So he just had all kind of strikes against him. Do you understand? Uh, and so he became pretty much lost to Christian history. And as many of our traditions admit, the Holy Spirit has always been the lost person of the Blessed Trinity. Um, only if you're Pentecostal or Assembly of God or Charismatic do you emphasize the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is in beautiful, life-giving green, and he's gesturing down toward a fourth place. Can you see that little rectangle in the front of the table? They have now done studies. This original icon still hangs in Moscow. And recently, I think in the last 25 years, they allowed scientists to examine it closer. And where that little rectangle is, they found out there was glue. And this is what they are assuming. Get ready. There was a mirror glued there, which has no precedent in any classic iconography. You, you get what's happening. No? That the observer observing this mystery of outpouring love between three perfect self-emptying, perfect receiving. God is 100% outpoured. God is 100% vulnerable. And yet we only really understood one half of that. I would say half of the Catholic prayers, the official prayers of the liturgy, and maybe you can see if this applies to your church, they begin with the phrase, Almighty God. Do you know unless you balance almighty with all vulnerable, you don't have the true shape of God. And that's why we've created so many atheists. Because we proclaim God to be almighty, even though right later at the Eucharist we call him Lamb of God, Cordero de Dios. Uh, we really didn't get it. We like a lion much better than a lamb. But if God is perfect self-emptying, eternal, infinite outpouring, and perfect receiving. Well, let's just start with this. I've already left my preface, haven't I? Uh, <laughs> God is much more a verb than a noun. Let's just start with that. Now, this is not heresy. I couldn't be talking to you much more orthodox. <laughs> this is orthodox theology, Roman Catholic theology, and Protestant theology. We all agree upon this, you know. But no one unpackaged the implications of it. And I, the only reason I can, no one was bad-willed, but I think consciousness was just not ready for it, to understand. Now here's what's helping our, our consciousness to expand, why I can talk this way, and why William Paul Young can write books like The Shack, that have now sold 40 million copies. He's going to join me in Albuquerque in April. We're going to fill the convention center talking about the Trinity. No one can believe it. All the churches in town, they're filling the convention center talking about the Trinity. Of course, he'll talk about it much more exciting than I will if you read The Shack, which I hope you did. It's sort of a page-turner. And who would have thought? Who would have thought that anybody could make the Trinity into a page-turning novel, you know? But it's because consciousness is ready. To understand God 
as an event of communion. In the beginning is the relationship. Hold on to that. Just hold on to that. In the beginning is the relationship. Now, if you think I'm a heretic, let's go back to the first chapter of Genesis. Maybe the irony of this struck you. It certainly has been problematic for our Jewish brothers and sisters. If you go back home and read Genesis 1, 26 and 27, it will say, let us create in our image. Plural pronouns. And the great monotheistic Judaism didn't know what to do with this, but they couldn't doubt that this was the meaning of the Genesis text in the oldest manuscripts. Let us create in our image. Now let me make an immediate connection to science. You've all seen pictures of the atom, the basic building block of the entire physical universe. What does the picture usually show you? An electron, a proton, and a neutron cycling around one another. And now as you look at the entire universe from atoms to galaxies, you see everything is indeed created in the divine image, and you are too. Now we'll get to that if we get enough time. It's just this stuff is too good to be true. It's like, <laughs> and you know, no bishop can question me on it because I'm more orthodox than most bishops are, you know, which is hard to say today in the Catholic world anyway. But it's not their fault. No one ever told them this, you understand? They pulled Jesus out of the Trinity too and made him the Savior and, you know, all this worship of Jesus. This is an eternal, infinite act of worship in itself. And everything you've ever seen with your eyes since the moment you're created is a product of this eternal self-emptying. The gesture of the Spirit pointing down onto creation and to the fourth place there at the table is us. Now, again, this is not heresy. You go back to the early Eastern fathers. They were, the Eastern church got this much better than the Western church did. They had a much more contemplative spirituality, a much more dynamic notion of God than we did. Ours was pretty static. We liked kings and emperors, and we just pushed God into that role, even though God had nothing to do with our model of, of a king or an emperor. In fact, quite the opposite quite the opposite. But that's what we were programmed for, preconditioned for. So just hold on to this. Now, so you don't feel like you're really slow or behind or stupid or something, it took the church itself three centuries to dare to verbalize this. They went to John's Gospel, which you've all heard thousands of times, I hope, and we hear Jesus talking of himself as the same as the Father, and yet I and the Father are one and different. He talks about giving himself, and this self he describes as spirit. So you just line up all the texts, particularly in John's Gospel, but in the three synoptics, and uh, if you approach it with your logical mind, it sounds like gobbledygook, Father, Son, Spirit, who's who here, you know? And most of us, if we come with a dualistic mind, I'm glad you mentioned that, Lori, uh, the, 
The Trinity was made to order, to undo dualistic thinking. You cannot possibly understand the Trinity with an either-or mind. huh? You can't. You have to move from the law of two to the law of two. Whenever you understand anything, does this need much proof now with Republican, Democrat? You know, <laughs> as soon as you have two, you have oppositional thinking. You've always got to choose side, which is pretty stupid thinking when you think of it. <laughs> Don't think of it. So, and then, then it'll be <laughs> begin to make sense. Male, female, Catholic, Protestant, just go anywhere. Though. The binary system of the mind prefers to divide everything up into twos. And the Trinity, to move you to the mystical mind, has to totally undercut that and say, I'm not understanding an oppositional thinking. Two is always oppositional. Three is dynamic. Right? Once you get inside of three, you have to keep flowing. You have to keep letting the one handing it on to the other. And that your very notion of God and grace and prayer and communion and relationship becomes, becomes the very flow of life itself. So back to the three centuries. There were some wonderful mystical fathers of the church in eastern Turkey, the area we call Cappadocia. Uh, one of our teachers at our living school, Cynthia Bourgeau, tells me I've got to get to eastern Turkey. She says there's still mystics there. And uh, they had the... Um, the ability to try to verbalize what seemed unverbalizable. <laughs> and they took words, believe it or not, from Greek theater and drama. You're just going to love this. At least I hope you'll love it. I find it very interesting. So I, I entitled a book that's coming out in October, The Divine Dance. Now, if you didn't know what I'm about to tell you, you'd think, well, isn't that a little new agey? You know, what's happening to Richard? He's certainly gone over the edge now. He, he must be living in San Francisco or something to, to dare to call God the divine dance. Well, that's just about as orthodox as you can get. Because the word they chose from Greek theater was, here's the Greek, peri around choresis dance, choreography. God is a dancing around. Oh my God. That's the official, that's accepted by all of our churches. In our most traditional theology of the Trinity, God is a circle dance. Hold on to it, huh? God is perichoresis. God is a flowing, not a, a noun, but a verb. Can you move from noun to verb? Can you get away from an old man on a throne <laughs> to a flow of communion, a flow of perfect givenness, and perfect vulnerability and receiving. Once you have God as vulnerable, let me just offer this right now. In fact, total vulnerability. Then the whole mystery of suffering on this earth becomes much more comprehensible. If you have God as merely almighty, you get damn angry at what's happening in Syria. Why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't God come down and stop it? That's why I say we've produced atheism. But when you say God is perfect and total receptivity, that God is not watching the suffering, 
God is involved in the suffering. God is transforming the suffering. In fact, the mystics would say there's only one suffering. There's only one suffering, and it's the suffering of God. Every bit of suffering you've ever had in your whole life is a participation in the eternal self-emptying of God for the life of the world. You see, human beings can live with suffering as long as they know it has some cosmic meaning. But for the last 300 years, the West hasn't had that. You wonder why we have so many mentally ill people in America? You wonder why we have so emotionally upset people in our country and in Western Europe? Because they have no sacred universe to live inside of. They're not a part of the divine dance. They're not looking at the mirror and seeing themselves sitting at the table as the fourth participant in the eternal banquet of God. This sacralizes everything. Do you understand? If God is relationship itself, stay with me, <laughs> then everything inside of relationship is in God. The only real sin is to absent yourself from relationship, <laughs> from the contemplative gaze toward, really, you know, St. Teresa of Avila says, I say this toward the end of the book, she says, when you get it, even a sardine can convert you. <laughs> you don't need a fancy church. This is sure a beautiful one. I wish we built them this nice. Very spacious and inviting and opening. But when you really get it, you don't need beautiful buildings even. Hmm? Even a sardine can convert you. When you look upon anything with love and communion, it opens the heart space. The whole key is to stand in communion and relationship with things. That's called contemplation. A long, loving look at things. To see them until they open your heart space. To see them until they reveal God to you. And everything can now do that. Now what do the scientists tell us? That as they continue to try to unpackage the atom, this tremendous energy that is released when we deconstruct the atom, which we call the atom bomb, isn't that something? That this is so much the nature of things that when you try to undo it, you destroy life. Boy, a philosopher would have a heyday with that. But here it gets even better. That apparently, and I'm not a scientist, I was educated in philosophy and theology and psychology, but not science, unfortunately, but I know this much that the energy in the atom is surprise of surprises not contained in the three particles but in the space between them. In the energy, the relationship between them. And we can't picture that space, we can't capture that space, we can't control that space. Does that sound like the Holy Spirit? <laughs> that blows where it will. No one's going to control it. You know, Cynthia, and she can get away with saying this because she's a woman, she says, says, we've wasted 30 years now arguing about the, the male names of the Trinity. She says, I don't care. Make them all male, make them all female. She says, don't just make the Holy Spirit female because then we lose. It's two to one. You know, father, <laughs> father, son. She says, don't go there. She says, I don't care what name you use. Use whatever names will open your heart space to the divine outpouring. Because the important thing is not the name of the three persons, now we're going to come back to that, 
but the space between them. Hold on to it. It's all about relationship. It's all about relationship. The quality of your relationship to the moment, to the person sitting across from you, to the lizard that we have in New Mexico, to the beautiful sky that you have here in Kansas, it's all about the quality of your presence. And when you learn how to be present, you will know what you need to know. I'm going to make that as an absolute statement. When you know how to be present to things, you will know what you need to know. Now, let's return to the second word those dang Greek fathers took to apply to the word of the, uh, or the nature of God. The word person. And this is going to really blow your mind. Because the way the word person was used by them to describe the three persons of the Trinity was again taken from Greek theater and it described exactly the opposite of the way you use the word person today. 180 degrees opposite. So let's go back to the traditional meaning. See, I'm much more traditional than these people who think they're traditional. Uh, who usually aren't traditional at all. The word persona was the word for the stage mask that the theater actors used. If you've been to Asia Minor or Greece, you've seen the beautiful amphitheaters uh, dug into hillsides. They didn't have microphones like I'm enjoying now. They had to produce and create megaphones. And they used these stage masks Remember being in a play in college where I had to wear one? And the mouth actually operated as a megaphone. So they would speak and they could be heard in the amphitheater. And the word for that was prosopon or persona, Greek and Latin. And uh, the Greek fathers said, we're going to take these words and apply them to the three particles inside the atom." Now, let's listen to the the core. Etymology, pair, means through in Latin. Sonare, you figure that out, means sound. So each of them, like the stage mask, was a sounding through. Got it? Persona. Personare. So a person was precisely not an isolated individual which is the way you use the term now. You're a person, you're a person, you're a person. The way we originally coined the term was to mean the opposite. The Father was not just the Father. He was the sounding through, stay with me, don't get sleepy now. This is heavy stuff, but it'll change your life, all right? The Father was not an independent uh, uh, being, but in fact was the sounding through of the Spirit and the Son. And this Now, St. Bonaventure, our Franciscan mystic, he said he thought the best metaphor, because it's all metaphors, we're just grabbing at metaphors to understand the nature of God, he said was a fountain that never stopped flowing like a water wheel. And the three buckets of the water wheel just keep emptying into the other. The other totally receives what is given, total givenness, total receptivity without ceasing. And they said, so let's call these three persons. And that was 
then became a philosophical term. So it's not that we name the three persons of the Trinity after human persons. It's exactly the opposite. You, in the English language and most Western languages, were called persons, and you got it, because you were created in the image of this. You are not an isolated individual. You are a sounding through of your mother and your father. You are created in the image of God. You are a sounding through of God. You are not your own. You are entirely relationship. So this myth of the, the isolated Western individualist, I'll do it my way, Frank Sinatra told us. Well, Frank, sorry, you missed the point. It's, it's not about doing it your way. Uh, there is no your way. It's all knowing by participation. Everything is in communion, everything. Now we have a word for it. We call it ecology, don't we? So again, science is helping us to understand this. Now let me go back to my text. Finally, <laughs> after that terrible distraction. I believe we're at precisely such a moment when it comes to our image of God. Instead of Trinity being an abstruse conundrum, mathematical problem, I was taught in Topeka by the good Sisters of Charity of Leavenworth, and I remember Sister Ephraim coming in the third grade, a good nun from Ireland, and she, and she said, you know, taught us the Trinity, taught us the sign of the cross, which, by the way, is a flowing body prayer. Gets it. It really does get it. Uh, but she says, you can't understand it, children. And, of course, like a good Irish woman, she held up a shamrock. She said, it's like a shamrock. And she says, don't think about it, just believe it. So that's what we did. <laughs> <laughs> we all agreed not to think about it, just believe it, and it became a mathematical conundrum. But let's try, if, if this doesn't, from the bottom up, rebuild Christianity into something that's so beautiful and so everywhere and so constant, there's nothing to fight. There's, nothing, there's no group to disbelieve in. It's not a participatory, I mean, it's not a competitive religion anymore. Huh? We don't need to fight Judaism or Hinduism or Islam. We just need to be in relationship, even with Jews and Muslims and all those people we're taught to hate. It's all about relationship. It's so simple that I think it's hard to teach, so I'm going to try. Let me try to describe the two paradigms in stark contrast. Instead of an omnipotent monarch, let's try what God as Trinity demonstrates as the actual and wondrous shape of God and therefore of everything created in the image of God, which is indeed everything, everything. God replicates the God self in us and in all of creation. In fact, Genesis 1 says, all the array of creation. It's a beautiful phrase. And we as Franciscans who always loved the animals and loved Brother Sun, Sister Moon, this just fit us so easily. We did have, I have to say, inside my Franciscan community, a much more uh, Trinitarian spirituality. 
But you only get that if you are trained by mystics. And we had a lot of Franciscan mystics, or if you were raised in the Orthodox Eastern Church. But the Western Church, let's be honest, was not very mystical. It wasn't. It was programmatic, you know. Uh, nothing wrong with programmatic, but it doesn't teach you relationship. It teaches you how to push your program forward, whatever your program for salvation is. Huh? And when your program is all about winning instead of being in relationship, can you see how that gets you off to a bad start? Mm -hmm. When you divide reality into winners and losers, we've wasted 500 years. I'm not blaming the Protestant Reformation, but we, we framed it in terms of either-or thinking, and we pretty much lost the mystical mind. We preferred two. We didn't know how to live inside of three. So, instead of God watching life happen from afar, a distant observer, a critical spectator, let's be honest. I want you to think right now, of your operative image of God. The God you really do fear, because all you can do is fear this kind of God. He's a critical spectator. Be honest. A critical spectator. Hmm? Can you feel how, how untrue that is to what I just said about the life of the Trinity? Instead of God watching life happen from afar and judging it, how about God being inherent in life itself? And that's why springtime can't stop happening, just keeps happening. How about God being the life force of everything? I mean, don't fight me on that. What else could God be? <laughs> just be logical, be, be common sense. What else could God be but the life force of everything? And, and, but it's just that you've never heard it. Oh, you mean it's really that wonderful? <laughs> See, there's nothing to fight now. There's nothing to hate. There's no group to join or group to, to reject. It's not about belonging to the right group anymore. And I can't help but think. That's why we clergy didn't lead you there, because we want you to belong to our group. It's all about group. <laughs> called the creating of codependency if you're in a 12-step program, you know. And organized Christianity has been masterful at creating codependency on one little salvation theory or one little explanation. Instead of God being an object like any other object, how about God being the life energy between each and every object? Does that sound like consciousness? Does that sound like love? Of course it does. It's flowing everywhere all the time. When you move from seeing to recognizing. Do you know a few weeks ago we, we read the, the Easter uh, gospel of Mary Magdalene, who I hear has just been elevated by Pope Francis, God bless him. Uh, and that wonderful story of Mary Magdalene coming early Easter morning, and she sees a man who looks like the gardener. And she thinks he is the gardener. All I can assume is he didn't look like Jesus. He must have looked like the gardener, whatever gardeners look like. Huh? 
And only when he pronounces her name does she move from seeing to recognizing. And he just says her name, Mary. He establishes the relationship, and she says, my teacher. The relationship is established. Now here's what I think that gospel text is meant to teach us. It is the gardener. <laughs> See, Jesus died and Christ arose. My next book is going to be on between Jesus and Christ. Jesus died and the body of Christ arose. But we keep picturing Jesus as an isolated little risen body moving around the world and some people are lucky enough to see him or get him and most of us don't which leaves us in a very empty universe. But if Jesus died and the body of Christ arose, you are the second coming of Christ. Paul is filled with this. Paul's supreme idea is that the new temple is the human person. The new temple is the human person. And because we didn't get that, we just kept building temples. At least we Catholics did. We love pretty temples, and that's nice. But, but instead of really honoring the living temple, and that's the meaning of Pentecost, you know when they dedicated the first temple? The fire descended from heaven to fill the temple, the building. It never descended on the second temple. And that's the meaning of Pentecost. The descent of fire is not anymore on buildings. It's on people. <laughs> You are the living temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the body of Christ. When we start taking the incarnation seriously in all its implications, even to the end implication of bread and wine, the elements of the universe are all the body of Christ. And Catholics were good on that since I've been critical of the Catholics, as the Orthodox were too. As Dorothy Day said, if the bread and wine is just a symbol, forgive her rudeness, but she said to hell with it. It's just a symbol to hell with it. Either we believe that God has taken on the physical universe as his beloved in all of its forms and faces, or we're not at home in the universe. Do you see? This is such good news. You just think everybody would be beating a track to the door to get it, you know? So in, this allows God to be much larger you know, at this time where the Hubble telescope just keeps going out, and you now know there's at least 60 galaxies, not stars, there's at least 60 galaxies for every person on the planet right now. When I was in school here in Kansas as a boy, we thought there were maybe a star for every person, but now there's 60 galaxies, and the cameras are still moving out. If we don't have a God that is at least as big as the universe, we're, if they discover life on another planet tomorrow, you know what I'm going to say, don't you? Our Jesus story is over. <laughs> either we have a cosmic Christ, either we have a cosmic notion of salvation, of what God is loving, what God is creating, what God is in relationship with, or we're very soon going to be in major trouble because we have a world that's bigger than God. Because the God that most of us were offered was very tribal. I guess I have to make this confession in a Methodist church where I grew up in Topeka. 
uh, we had a pretty little Methodist church right across the street. Loman Hill, wasn't that Loman Hill Methodist? Is it still there, I wonder? Still there. Well, the good nuns, and they were good nuns, but this was 1952, you know, and we hadn't had our Vatican reforms yet or anything, and the good nuns said, now don't go in any Protestant church. I don't know if we thought Zeus was going to get us or what, but, and I found out you were told not to come in our churches. That's called tribal thinking. It has nothing to do with the gospel. In fact, it's contrary to the gospel. That, that small doctrine will never save the world, never. It's too tiny. It's meant for people who live at the tribal level. But I can tell you, on Sunday mornings, we'd hear those pretty Methodist hymns. They'd open their windows for the hot summer days. But I'd think, oh, those are pagans in there. <laughs> Methodists, pagans. I mean, you can't get nicer people than Methodists. Uh, you really, they're the least argumentative of most Protestants, you know. And yet I was trained even to fear you. What a waste of time. Do you understand? The time we lost, instead of loving God in all things, seeing God in all things, recognizing God in all things, we always kept putting up boundaries. God's here but not there. Here but not there. Every group does it. And Judaism did it too. They became a tribal religion. And that's why Jesus, although he loved his Jewish religion, uh, wanted to lead it beyond that. He said, I'm not talking about the kingdom of Judah. I'm talking about the kingdom of God that includes everybody and everything. And here we came, followers of Jesus, talking about the kingdom of God, but we talked about the Catholic kingdom or the Pentecostal kingdom or the Methodist kingdom. So instead of the small God we seem struck, stuck with, how about the God who is inherent in life itself, always involved? And here's God's job description. God, and this is an exact quote from Romans, God is the one who creates life out of death. He takes the suffering of the second person, the groaning of creation, the, the constant transforming of forms. And through this price of self-emptying, which is what God is doing, God always produces a new form of life. Brothers and sisters, the resurrection of Jesus is not a one-time anomaly. It's the nature of things. It's the nature of the universe. Jesus is a map of consciousness of where it's all heading. We Franciscans still had that clear in the 13th century. And then we got into these food fights of heaven, hell, and purgatory trying to place everybody in one or the other. <laughs> and we lost the cosmic revolution the cosmic good news, where the final chapter of history was clear. It was resurrection. In our funeral liturgy, in the Catholic liturgy, if you've been to one, what do we say in the preface of the Mass? Life is not ended. It is merely changed. Right? Any good scientist will tell you that. Life is not ended. It is merely changed. And in fact, they say that the amount of atoms at the Big Bang 14.6 billion years ago uh -huh, are still the same amount of atoms on the earth right now. 
they just keep changing shape. They just keep, uh, this isn't heresy. This is the shape of things because everything is created in the shape of God. Huh? And God's job description is to make life out of death. Got it? That's what God does. Give me your death, I will make it into life. Whatever you hand over to God trustfully is transformed into life. So, let me just, so this gets physical and real for you and not just abstract. Every vital impulse, every force toward the future, every creative momentum, every loving surge, every dash toward beauty, every running toward truth, every ecstasy before goodness, every leap of Alain Vital, as the French would say, every bit of ambition for humanity and earth, for wholeness and holiness, is the eternally flowing life of the Trinity. Got it? I don't care what shingle it has hanging on the front, whether it says Christian or Methodist, I have met research scientists in the last 10 years of my life who've given 20 years of their life, day after day, searching for a cure for malaria. And I know Catholics who go to Mass every Sunday who don't even know the name of their neighbor who lives on each side of them. Do you understand? And that's pretty common. And I'm supposed to say these Catholics are going to heaven, and this research scientist, he's already in heaven. Do you understand? The flow is flowing through him. It doesn't take you long to recognize people who are in heaven and people who are in hell. You can spot it in the first 10 minutes. Really? As Catherine of Siena said, it's heaven all the way to heaven, and it's hell all the way to hell. I love signing those books like I got to do, because all of you just sat down and gave me this sweet smile and told me your name. And, you know, there's a lot of heavenly people, even in Wichita, Kansas. Can you believe that? <laughs> in the chirp of every excited bird about a new morning. We were watching the birds this morning at Lori's house. In the hard beauty of every sandstone cliff like we have in New Mexico. In the clerk's gratuitous smile to the department store customer. In the deep satisfaction you feel when you've done a job well for love and caring. In the passion of sex. In the passivity of the hospital bed. Now to quote Paul from 1 Corinthians, the world life or death, present or future, all belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. It is one Trinitarian flow since the beginning. And all you have to do to know and love God is to stay inside the flow. Got it? Now that might say, oh, he sounds like some new ager. That's not as easy as it sounds, all right? Because the natural instinct, and I quoted this at the wedding homily yesterday, apparently I didn't say it correctly, I get so excited about my own ideas, sometimes I stumble <laughs> over words. But, uh, we have a school, we have, in fact have a few students here from our living school, and um, when I taught the January class, this therapist from Chicago came up to say, Richard, you don't know how true you're saying or speaking of contemplation. 
He says, I'm a therapist and I'm a neuroscientist. And he said, do you know that the mind is inclined toward negative, fearful, hateful, resentful thoughts? This will help you understand the election. Really? Yeah, really. <laughs> Sadly, I'm sad. Without contemplation, the mind naturally grabs around fear and negativity and anger. It does. And he said it's like Velcro. You just grab onto negativity. And if you don't have a spiritual practice that teaches you how to let go of your negativity and your fear, you just stay more Velcro, more Velcro, more Velcro. And he said, but it, the, the problem is even worse. Positive, grateful, happy, joyous moments, if you don't savor them, and he says, I can prove this to you as a neuroscientist. We can put electrodes on your brain and prove it. A positive, happy, joyous thought, if you're a seven on the anagram, you love this, of course. Uh, you have to consciously, deliberately enjoy something for a minimum of 15 seconds. If you don't enjoy something consciously, deliberately, we would say in Christian language, give God praise and glory for that beautiful bluebird we were looking at this morning, huh? Say, isn't that beautiful? Thank you, God. Why did you create that bird? You know, not a Jayhawk. A... <laughs> That's what it takes. You've got to praise God for things. Huh? And when you do that, it imprints. That's called contemplation. That's contemplation. It's that simple to learn how to enjoy things, how to love things in themselves, for themselves, by themselves, as themselves, in themselves. It is good that you exist. That's what it means for me to be a Christian. But that takes work. Because the, uh, the, he said, if the negative thoughts are like Velcro, the positive thoughts are like Teflon. They just roll off. And you know that's true. How many times haven't you been excited and ten minutes later you're grumpy again? Hmm? You've got to choose. You've got to deliberately, consciously, intentionally imprint on your brain, I am happy. <laughs> and I mean, this explains, it does. I'm not trying to make a huge illogical leap. This explains our politics. You would think this entire country of America, who have more than any human beings ever had on this planet, I mean, let's be honest, the most spoiled people in the world don't have enough. And they're angry and they're hateful. It just, you just want to cry every day. You just can't watch the news anymore. It's so, so sad. But this is what happens, and let me end on this point. This is what happens when religion isn't doing its job. Got it? And I don't think religion's been doing its job. It's just all inviting us into small little tribes. Not the Trinitarian flow whereby we can see God in all things. And that was the Franciscan motto. Deus meus, my God, et omnia, and everything else. My God and everything else. Huh? And let me deliberately end on this. Whenever you use the word God, just know that God is just another word for everything. <laughs> and when you fall in love with God, I forewarn you, you're eventually going to fall in love with everything. Now, I think a lot of people don't want to go there. 
They just want to fall in love with white Methodists from Wichita, you know? <laughs> I mean, white Methodists from Wichita are our hosts today. We're very grateful. But that's too small a tribe, do you understand? And that's why we have the political, economic, social problems we have. And up to this point, let's be honest, our Christian denominations have not been the answer, but in great part, we've been part of the problem. We've actually solidified the separateness instead of exalting in the communion of all things. So let me stop. We still have half an hour. For any questions you'd like to ask, I think Jeff's going to come with his... Oh, there we go. And you can ask whatever you want, preferably on this subject. Don't ask me if there are souls in purgatory or something like that. <laughs> I don't really have a question. Uh, well, no, I just want to say I know your name because I was uh, interested in Matthew Fox and some of those people in the 80s. Yeah. And I go, Richard Rohr, I know him. <laughs> so I came to hear what you had to say. What I wanted to add was that my catechism that I remember in the eighth grade <laughs> said on the front page that God is everywhere in everything and It was question it, sixteen the, actually, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah I mean no. and, <laughs> And, and, and I have gone back to that in my own thinking. Yes, yeah. If God Question is 16. everywhere in everything, and I should love him with yeah. all of my heart, and all, all of my soul, soul all, you know, all of my being. Yeah. We had a... What, where, where can I turn where I God isn't? Question 16 said, where is God? And we as good Catholic children would spout back to the nuns, God is everywhere. And then the rest of the Baltimore Catechism, in effect, said, we really don't mean that. <laughs> well, God, I, I, God is not did, everywhere. I, God is only in the Catholic Church. I, I did check a, a much later current uh, catechism for uh, Catholic mm. orientation. That statement's not in the front anymore. Well, and I think that's very sad, hmm. yeah, personally. It is very sad. Yeah, if it is and true. It may be someplace yeah. else. I would hope But it in is. my catechism, yeah. it was on the front page. Well, okay. Thank you. Anyone else? I'm just wondering how you've been feeling. Oh, aren't you thoughtful? <laughs> no, I'm feeling fine. I had the prostate surgery in the fall. It's returning a little bit, but it, it doesn't seem to be. I'm not going to worry about it. It's... I'm okay, thank you. My health is fine. It's very caring of you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. My name is Andy Martin, and I bring you greetings from Topeka, Kansas. Topeka. Um, my question is, I love the image that you give us. Isn't that and the, great? And the flow. But I'm going to Go to the best Christian bookstore in all of America. It's in Wichita, Kansas, Eighth Day Books. <laughs> And I mean that. I've been all over the world, and the best Christian bookstore is in Wichita, Kansas. So if you don't know this, you haven't discovered a gem of a church, but he will happily sell you a good rendition of that. I'm sorry. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, what a great endorsement there. Wow. Warren. Um, I, as a human, 
I struggle to be in the flow. And I get... It is a struggle. It's not as easy as it sounds. Yeah. And I get, you know, I, I, I get stuck in the shadows. Yep. And, we and all that, do. And that we it's talk hard. about this Jesus and the suffering. And I'm, I love the way you image staying in the flow. How do we keep from getting stuck from, and stay into the flow? And I'm curious, you've spent more time with the image than we have, but I, I can't help but the pointing downward. And is there something in the box? That's where the mirror was. Uh, but, but the mirror that, was glued onto that spot, we think. We can't prove it. Go ahead. But I just, I can't help but see an image of my, my inner shadow. Oh, well. In, in the box. Yeah. You know, we again don't know if the original artist intended you not even to see that, that it was supposed to be a mirror. We just don't know. But you're still making a very good point. And this is why I know most of us are tired, probably overreacting to the word sin, because it was used so much, and sometimes to manipulate and control people. But you still don't want to be naive, and I think you have not been naive, to say there seems to be huge obstacles to staying in the flow. And that's why I gave you the Velcro and Teflon images. Contemplation is one of those, and there's many forms of contemplative practice, which help you recognize when you're grabbing onto fear, anger, hatred, and negativity, and to learn how to hand that over. If you don't have some spiritual practice, in fact, there are people saying that the next century, if Christianity is to be reformed in all of our denominations, it has to first of all move back to the Trinity, which I obviously totally agree with. Secondly, we have to stop teaching people things to believe and giving them practices to practice whereby they can know something for themselves. There's nothing to believe or disbelieve. Just do it and come back and tell me what happens inside when you do that. Now, I think that's what things like the rosary were meant to be for Catholics, chanting and many other walking meditation. We have all these practices, but Protestantism is most bereft, I'm just being honest, of practices. You, you based everything on believing things, and believing things has the great temptation of solidifying the ego, making you opinionated instead of making you in the flow. Things like walking meditation, moving from seeing to recognizing practices, those teach you how to stay in the flow. So I'm trying to bring back and say the notion of sin is real. If you're naive about the power of evil to blind you, to block you, we're attracted to resistance. We're attracted to negativity every one of you in this room. And if you don't see that in yourself, which is what you see in early stage contemplation, you'll undoubtedly, if you don't uh, see it, you'll be trapped by it, almost certainly. Thank you. Good question. My name's Kim Vines. Thank you very yes. much for being welcome, here and giving Kim. us your time and your energy. Um, you said that when you know how to be present to something, That's that you key. will know what you know. What you need to I know. I have a several, what you need to know. I have a several part question. The first right. is, do you reach that point in this life, 
Next part, have you, be, how? Oh, wow. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, probably the single biggest thing we did after defining the individual different than the divine persons uh, to anesthetize the transformative power of the gospel was the putting off of salvation till after death. Jesus, Jesus, I mean, just follow the God. He's not talking about going to heaven. Get over it. Just read the Gospels. He's healing people's suffering right now. He cares about this woman's pain today. And that we moved it all into a reward punishment system for after we died was a massive, destructive misplacement of attention. And it made us afraid of God instead of transformed by the love of God right now. It, it just, it, this is why so many people have left the church. They basically say it doesn't work because no one can be this perfect person who's going to go to heaven, yet where are they? And I've given bishops' retreats and priest retreats all over the world and nuns' retreats and even a few cardinals' retreats, you know, and they're just as bad as all the rest of us, you know. <laughs> Because they're human beings, and if they weren't taught contemplation, they get taught, caught in this same negativity, ambition, gluttony, greed, fear, and all the other things we get caught in. So I hope I've tasted it. Uh, that's the only reason I can talk the way I talk with, I hope, excitement and conviction, because I know it's now. I, I don't wait for it. I'm not worried about what happens after death. If God loves me, so generously and so mercifully with an infinite mercy as Pope Francis keeps saying. Why would God change his mind if I wrecked driving back to New Mexico tomorrow? You know, God loves me before. And he says, I'm the God of the living, Jesus says, not the God of the dead. What else did you ask me now? Uh, did I answer how? Oh, how? Contemplation. The how, how you reached that point in contemplation. Which, you know, most of my books, in effect, are about contemplation. Everything Belongs, uh, The Naked Now, Silent Compassion, but the other ones, they're all weaved in between. Because for me, the contemplative mind is the change that changes everything. And the easiest way to say it is it's a movement away from dualistic thinking, where you stop dividing the field of the moment in what you agree with and what you don't agree with, and you just let it be what it is. Can you do that? No. Without practice, you can't. You can't. You can't. You divide everything up to what you like and what you don't like. Watch. That's the way the ego works. Well, I like her because she's white. I don't like her because she's black. I like him because he's heterosexual. I don't like him because he's gay. That's a huge waste of time. I hope you know that. Because you're keeping all of the control inside yourself for what you agree with and what you disagree with. Huh? It's not all about you. So, so Pope Francis has to keep telling the Catholic clergy to stop being so self-referential. He keeps telling us, you know, it's not all about you. Huh? <laughs> and, uh, but as long as we keep the judging self being center stage, I can promise you, you will not experience presence. And that was your first. You will not. 
You cannot be present to things when you are judging them. You can't. Your mind has taken control, and you are uh, accepting that which you already agree with and understand and flatters your ego usually. And that part which is outside of your experience, uh, you're threatened by, and so you stupidly call it wrong. It isn't wrong, you're just not used to it. Do you see how self-referential that is? But the, the non-contemplative can't see that. And, and so when Jesus says, says you have to lose yourself to find yourself, there has to be this radical decentering of the person. So the Richard self is not the center of the world. <laughs> and my preferences and what I'm used to I have to have made enough mistakes by my age now to see that it doesn't mean very much. It just doesn't mean very much what Richard likes and what Richard doesn't like. Do you see? Now, when you're young, you think it matters, I guess, you know, <laughs> and you base your life on that. That's why I wrote the book Falling Upward. That's the first half of life. Morality is all about obeying tiny rules. And then when you see that the rules really don't help you be loving, most of the time, they just help you be judgmental. You, <laughs> it takes you a long time to see that, though. It really does. Uh, and it really, I can't teach, I can't prove that to you. The Spirit has to prove that to you. And then you'll be convicted by a voice much deeper than mine. So presence, and I'll make this quick, is when your mind space is open, your heart space is open, and your Body is present and accounted for. When all three, body, heart, and mind, are present and accounted for. Not negative, not oppositional, not victimized, not playing the victim or creating victims. Just, I am what I am what I am, naked underneath my clothes. That's presence. So presence isn't easily come by. We Catholics taught... Catholics to believe in the real presence in Jesus in the bread and the wine but you know what we didn't teach Catholics how to be present to the presence and presence is a relationship term and unless you teach people how to be present to the real presence they will not experience presence got it yeah it's sort of simple once you hear it but it's harder to learn it <laughs> anybody else Jeff Tell me who, yes. Yes, uh, in seeking to be inclusive of uh, all faiths and different world religions, I was wondering what you would have to say uh, to Christians who might say that Jesus is the only way to God um, and just uh, how to address that um, because it seems like something that yes. divides Christian, John 14, Christianity. John 14, All right. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I've spent whole retreats just on that quote, understanding it at the different nine levels of consciousness, how you'll understand it at a tribal level, how you'll understand it at a mystical level. It's not the words. And that was the Achilles heel of Protestantism. It thought as long as you had the right word, you had the truth. It's the level at which you understand the word. huh? And the mystical mind understands things very differently than the tribal mind, which is sort of level three in a nine-level system. So let me just try a few things that will help you. 
I actually could say, now I'm going to show my orthodox conservative credentials. Jesus is the way, the truth. No, the Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And believe that with full sincerity. Now, John's gospel, we don't have Jesus walking around talking. John's gospel is written around 90 to 100. We have the Christ, the risen Christ, the eternal Christ proclaiming eternal mysteries. That's why John's gospel is like a whole different level than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I'm sure you've discovered that. You have to say, who is this talking? You know, it's a different person. Than, than the person talking in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this Christ, who is the perfect union of human and divine, see his two fingers there? That's Christ. That's not Jesus. Jesus is the historical person who walked in time. Christ, and if you think I'm a heretic, read the prologue to John's Gospel, read the first chapter of Ephesians, read the ch- first chapter of Colossians, They all say the Christ existed from all eternity, right? So the Christ is that part of God which shows itself in physical form. Whenever God, the formless one, whom we call the Father, takes form, takes visibility, physicality, so you and I can see it or participate in it in some sense, that's the Christ mystery. Now knowing that, I can say without any hesitation. And if I'd have time to explain it, I'd have a mystical Hindu or mystical Jew or mystical Buddhist totally agree with me. This coherence of matter and spirit is the way, the truth, and the life. (laughs) Well, that's what we're all trying to do is put together the visible world with the invisible world. Got it? That's what the Christ does. But most of you were not taught about the Christ. You were told to fall in love with Jesus, but you weren't told to fall in love with the eternal Christ. And that's why things like racism, sexism, classism, homophobia have persisted till our time. A lot of people love Jesus, but you and I know some of the most racist people in America say they love Jesus. I'm not impressed. Because basically their Jesus is way too small. They love Jesus without loving Christ. Can you follow me, what I'm saying? The small mystery without the big mystery. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Maybe that's the easiest way to say it. All right. (laughs) Christ is an eternal title of the anointed one who names the mystery of reality, all reality. It's not a competitive religion. It's the shape of things. And if God grants me years, that'll be my next book, to help people understand that Christ is not Jesus' last name. But, But Christ is what's always been true, the map of everything. Go ahead, Jeff. Thank you. Uh, I'm Bob Martin. I'm from here in Wichita, and I want to thank you because it's like we're on a backpack trip or a journey, and reading your books just pulls me into a sense of, of presence and contemplation with Good. thank you it, and I realize how life is so much not about beliefs but about realizations and belief is a good way to start so I don't I don't want anybody to leave here thinking I'm against belief but it's just a starter kit that's all it is 
to get you situated in the right field. Right, right. it's training yeah. wheels, yeah. it seems. Mm -hmm. And then the, the last thought I had was when I thought of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil wow. and the original sin is me being able to think I can be the decider of what is good and what is evil. Yeah, and to remove myself from that position is really quite a relaxing thing to do to suspend judgment and let God be God. You're much happier unity. as a contemplative, much happier. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. And that's why if you go back to Genesis, I use that as the frontispiece of the book, The Naked Now. Uh, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will most surely die. Well, uh, does that make a bit of sense? Unless you understand what I think I'm trying to say. Well, the yeah, tree of the knowledge ourselves. of good and yeah. evil is dualistic thinking. Right. That I know who's going to heaven and I know who isn't. No, you don't. You don't have a clue. <laughs> Thank you. It was trying to give religion humility at the beginning. And because we ate voraciously of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we've had the troubles we've had. We're still in early Christianity. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for being here. You're welcome. I love you so much. Um, I have heard in one of your tapes, I'm going to sit down, I feel uncomfortable. That's right. Um, I heard on one of your tapes, you mentioned briefly that contemplation can be taught to children. Yes. And I didn't, I really wanted you to expand on it. Oh. And I teach eighth grade at a Catholic school. Oh. And I know we have adoration, which is wonderful. It's a starter, good starter. Right, yeah. and we do have adoration from early on, kindergarten at least, but um, do you think that it will be more prevalent? Like, are we really, can we really start this movement of, yeah. it's bothersome to me, and also I want to teach them that, but I also want to teach them to have respect for the rules that can guide them sure, and form sure. their container, good. as you say. Good. But I just want to know your thoughts on that. You know, uh, in October, I'm going to drive up to Snowmass and meet with Father Keating, who's 94 and still has energy for meetings. I hope I have that kind of energy 20 years from now. Uh, and he's inviting just four of us, Tilden Edwards, the founder of Shalem Institute in Washington, Lawrence Freeman, who's the head of the World Community for Christian Meditation. And we're, we're going to meet about how can we get seminaries to first of all teach the clergy contemplation because most clergy don't know anything about it so they don't know how to support it how to how to get it uh, so it doesn't look like something foreign or, or something different there's only one diocese catholic diocese i know of in the world that has made its pastoral program the teaching of contemplation from the bishop to the priest to the religious to the laity and in every Catholic school. And I visited there about eight years ago, the Diocese of Townsville, Australia. You probably never heard of it. Beautiful area. And this holy bishop, he, uh, he, made, he said, this is my spiritual practice. And for the next five years, I want it to be the primary pastoral program of every parish in the diocese. And I went there to watch the school kids and they took me to the kindergarten class, to the third grade class, to the eighth grade class, to the high school. And they start in the fifth grade, uh, with the five-year-olds, not fifth grade, and they train them in what to do with their little minds for five quiet minutes 
and I observed them with my own eyes, so I know this is not made up, these little five-year-olds just sitting there. The teachers told me in every classroom, there's no fighting of this. It's almost a freedom to not have to be clever and say something cute or be the best basketball player, just to be. In the sixth, sixth year, you, you are quiet for six minutes. When you're seven years old, you can be quiet for seven minutes. And when in the high school, you know, where there they were for 15 to 18 minutes. It was just wonderful. Sitting in silence. I've also been in Folsom and San Quentin prisons on death row, where the wardens admitted to us it's the most successful prison ministry they've ever had because there's nothing to argue about. You understand? Whereas most prison ministry is the Methodists versus the Lutherans or whatever it might be, which is such a waste of time. You know, it's just, can we learn how to be quiet before God and let God's very nature pervade our being? So I mentioned the World Community for Christian Meditation because if you have a computer, WCCM, go home, WCCM.com, and they have several links in which their literature on how to teach it to kindergartners, how to teach it to sixth graders. It's beautifully done for every age group. And I would love, I probably won't go back, but uh, I'd love someone to do a study five years from now to see the long-term effect of having an entire diocese being contemplative together. And he even encouraged the priests Instead of this preoccupation with liturgical formulas and perfect words read from a book, let's make the liturgy less verbal, more quiet time, more contemplative. Most of our church services, forgive me, are far too verbal. And here I say this after talking to you for an hour and a half. But uh, it's just words can't get you there. You've got to go beyond words. One more do we have time for? Okay, there we go. Uh, hi, I'm pretty new to you, but uh, I was just wondering what your beliefs are on the idea that people choose to go to hell. Well, that was certainly said by many of the early fathers of the church and mystics throughout the ages that no one is in hell unless they want to be there, that they have to choose a life of autonomy and separation and chosen hatred. I want to be hateful. And, but God, God condemns no one to hell. The, the soul can only choose it. But let me tell you why philosophers and theologians insisted, and even Buddhism has the notion of hell, Hinduism does too. You have to maintain it as a logical possibility. Our human beings are not free. Got it? You have to maintain it. Now, Therese of Lisieux, the wonderful Catholic saint who died just a little over 100 years ago, she writes in one of her letters that she says, Jesus told me there's no one there. <laughs> that, that, that no one can resist. Once you see infinite love, no one can resist infinite love. In this finite world, we cannot imagine anything infinite. But once we experience infinite love, now even there though, to be logical and consistent, we have to 
maintain the possibility that one could be free to choose to live separately hateful for all eternity. Now, one final thing, and you can check me out on the orthodoxy of this for the good Catholics. Pope John Paul II, who was certainly no raging liberal, on the night of June 28, 1999, at his general audience, you can get it, he said, when will Catholics recognize that heaven and hell are not geographic places, they are states of consciousness? Pope John Paul II, right? They're not geographic places, they're states of consciousness. And they're states of consciousness which you choose right now, right now. Right in this room, I would presume, if you've endured me for an hour and a half, you're all in heaven already, are you? <laughs> really, this wouldn't make a bit of sense to you otherwise. But, uh, <laughs> really, yeah. <laughs> well, we are well, going, good way to end, Father Richard. It? You're all in heaven. Yeah. Now, before you take the mic off, oh, oh. we promised we're going to have Father Richard be escorted out by Lori and oh. Kevin in advance of you and I so that then we don't get him in a position where he doesn't get on the road. So, but before you take off the mic, oh, oh. Father Richard, oh, right. when you were at the Basilica of the National Shrine in Washington, D.C. Yeah. What did I say? What did I say? <laughs> My words are always held against me. I've got to find no, out what it, I... <laughs> you, you led them in a closing practice. What was and, the uh, Yahweh prayer? No. Psalm 4610, right? Oh, let's do that. That's a good one. All right. So uh, we often use this to lead people in to silence, or in this case, to lead them out into a world of silence. Just repeat after me, and we'll be silent together for a minute. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know that I am. Be still and know. Be still and know. Be still. Be still. B. B.